Welcome to Paris, a city that, despite its exceptional beauty, has frequently fermented revolutions in its many cafes. I'm Agnès Poirier, and I'm going to take you on a walking tour through Paris, from the Latin Quarter to the Champs Élysées, revisiting the events of May 1968 as students took to the street and changed the world. As we walk, you will be able to relive the major events of May 68 through the eyes of Parisians of the day, philosophers and historians, to a soundtrack of revolutionary songs as interpreted by violinist Sarah Harrison and guitarist Lee Clark. And you'll also be able to listen to news actuality of the time. So, how does this podcast work? Well, it's divided into 16 chapters which you can listen to as you walk. You may need to pause at the end of the chapter to catch me up. The whole walk should take about an hour and a half. But don't worry, we'll tell you exactly where to go and turn. Plus, you may have printed off the map and directions from the Guardian website. And we've added pictures too, which should appear on the screen of your iPod. There are archive pictures from the days of May 1968, plus some we've taken specially so you know where you are. You can, of course, choose to stop on the way and have a cafe in one of the students' bistros, which we'll be recommending along the way, or decide to nip in one of those Latin Quarter outhouse cinemas, which offer the most varied programming in the world. Our story begins in the mid-60s. The shadow of the Second World War has gone, and the scars of the Algerian War have healed. Paris and France are enjoying prosperity like never before, with an economic growth of more than 5% per year. All seems well. Consumerism and technological progress have become the leitmotiv of a society for which past struggles have been replaced by the acquisitions of a washing machine and television. Young French people who increasingly go to university become a class of their own, fleeting between adolescence and adulthood. Artists such as Jacques Tati in films like Mon Oncle, and playtime, denounce the mass conformism which seems to have seized the whole country. Revolutionary ideals seem to have been left to countries such as Cuba, Vietnam and China. Charles de Gaulle, the French president, may be taking courageous decisions on the world stage, such as recognizing Maoist China in 1964 or withdrawing from military organizations, such as NATO two years later, but the French youth is yearning for more. In theatre, the plays of Eugene Ionesco and Samuel Beckett, depicting the absurdity of life, are very popular. In philosophy, Guy Debord's situationists are making themselves heard. For them, France's daily life routines have fallen prey to advertising and show business, leaving no room for creativity and dream. The newspaper Le Monde, in a famous edition of March 1968, sums up the feeling in its headlines. La France s'ennuie. In other words, France is bored. Even de Gaulle, the hero of the Résistance, is bored. In April, he tells an army officer, it's not fun anymore, everything is easy, no more heroic tasks. Well, the French and de Gaulle aren't going to be bored for much longer, as Parisian students are about to strike at the heart of France. (laughs) 
So as you leave Café de Flore, turn left into Boulevard Saint-Germain, keep walking for about 300 meters up to the second crossroads called Carrefour de l'Odéon. Joining me on our tour is the French historian Professeur Capdevielle, who has just written a book called Dictionary of May 68, and the author of Paris, A Secret History, Andrew Hussey. So, Andrew, it all started, uh, didn't it, at the brand-new University of Nanterre, just outside of Paris? I think one of the mysteries of May 68, and it is a mystery, is how one apparently very banal incident leads to another incident that leads to another incident that culminates in what's almost a revolution. And what really happens in Nanterre is a spat over the use of student residences. And you've got this very hierarchical paternalistic system where boys and girls aren't allowed to share each other's bedrooms, where they're not allowed to listen to bad French rock music and twist together. And the rector of the university comes in and basically tells them off. So you've got a, a recipe for disaster, you've got a tinderbox. Now, Professor Capdevielle, uh, tell us about the leader of the Nantes University protest, Daniel Cohn-Bendit. Cohn-Bendit, who was... Uh, German and French uh, as his nationality. So he was already an, an inter- he had an internationalist view of the things uh, and he was a very popular at that time until the, 20, the end of March, I should say, approximately. So Andrew Hussey, the international situationists uh, were masters in the art of slogans, weren't they? Uh, one of the favourite slogans, this is very dear to all students of all generations, is ne travaillez jamais, never work, and was a revolt against the kind of Paris they saw as a, as, as a capitalist den, which was the right bank, and the left bank becoming a kind of utopian playground. This was the idea of ne travaillez jamais. Another favourite slogan was sous les pavés la plage, and the idea was that you pick up a pavé, one of the cobblestones from the Parisian streets, hurl it at a policeman, and this was the way to find in la plage, the utopia, the perfect world. So you can see the situationists were very romantic in lots of ways and never had an appeal for middle class youth. At the same time what they were attacking, which is what they called La Société du Spectacle, the Society of the Spectacle, was a very direct assault on a world that seemed to infantilise them. And, and one of the key words that was used during May 68 was boredom. L'ennui, la France s'ennui. And it was boredom as it were raised to the, the, the level of, a, of an insurrectionary principle. to leave you to ponder on the situationist movement and we'll meet you in a few minutes at the corner of Rue de l'Ancienne Comédie and Boulevard Saint-Germain. See you there. So we're now standing at the corner of Rue de l'Ancienne Comédie and Boulevard Saint-Germain, looking out onto the boulevard. It's May the 6th, and Andrew Hussey, what's happening? 
A whole group of uh, students, including Cohen Bendit, um, were disciplined at the Sorbonne. Of course, obviously, this didn't go down too well with the students. So you've got a very kind of, as it were, electric atmosphere with potential violence. The police uh, are, are staring this up by poking people with sticks and being generally provocative. But one of the one of the often forgotten catalysts for what happened that night was a small right-wing group called Occident, who were in the courtyard of the Sorbonne, uh, and then all then spilling over to the Boulevard Saint-Michel. And they were sort of distributing pamphlets calling for these students to be hanged. In the courtyard of the Sorbonne, there were initially scuffles between Occident and supporters of the students who'd been on trial. This spilled over into the Boulevard Saint-Michel. The police came down from the northern side of Boulevard Saint-Michel, then up from the southern side. The students found themselves surrounded, and the only way to go was towards Rue Monsieur le Prince and, and the Sorbonne. So all of a sudden, a skirmish had become a major street battle. And the students started attacking the terraces of cafes, smashing the chairs, turning them into clubs and improvising helmets. Professor Capdeville, you were a student at the time. Were you here that day? Yes, I was still a student. In, in <laughs> and did you, did you throw things at the, at the police? Yeah, well, every student was there. What was, um... They were throwing bottles of beer, cans, burning newspapers yes, or something? Yes, burning newspapers, things like that. It, it was not very tough. I mean, it was bon enfant, I don't know how you say. But, but yet quite violent. But, but in the same time, violent from place to place. I mean, because the, the police uh, charge a student. Okay, so now let's cross uh, the Boulevard Saint-Germain towards the Odeon Theatre, which you can actually see at the end of Rue de l'Odeon. It's this beautiful Palladian building. And if you're curious, on the left side, you'll see behind the trees this statue of Danton, the great French revolutionary. On this street, Rue de l'Odeon, lives a famous writer, Olivier Rollin. He was just 21 in May 1968, a student at the very prestigious École Normale Supérieure, and he loved a good fight. I asked Olivier Rollin whether the riots surprised people. May 68 surprised and scared people, and not only the people, but the whole political class. Let us not forget that the Fifth Republic was almost overturned, that de Gaulle disappeared for two days, that the panic spread to all ministries. Besides, nobody had seen such violent demonstrations since, well, since a long time. In a country which everybody thought was prosperous and at peace, an extreme violence was suddenly taking to the street and was shaking the very foundations of the state. And this violence led many students to embrace extreme positions. We were very Maoist. It may sound strange today, but it meant at least one good thing, which is that we were supposed to get rid of our intellectual pride. In fact, we were very anti-Leninist and anti-avant-gardist. We were closer to a tradition of paleo-Christian ascetism. We had to get rid of our intellectual privileges. So we are just passing La Méditerranée, which is quite well-known restaurant and uh, a lot of pictures, a lot of drawings by Jean Cocteau inside. Yes, and, of and Arsene he Wells was a great uh, guest. Uh, let's cross now and, and go to the Odeon Theatre. Mm-hmm. 
So, Professor, we are now in front of the Odeon Theatre, which was famously occupied for many weeks. So artists, students and workers spend day and night talking and talking and talking. It, it very much feels as if French society was suddenly releasing all she had kept for herself and for so long. It was a kind of permanent happening, 20 hours a day, where everybody could come in and stand and say anything about everything. A very crazy atmosphere. The runner of the theatre at the time were Jean-Louis Barrault and Madeleine Renaud, well-known comedian. We can remember Jean-Louis Barrault, he's playing in Les Enfants du Paradis. That's right. Uh, and they, they were leftist actors. They did not understand why the students occupied their theatre. and They were very disappointed and very frustrated. So people were talking all the time, and as you said, they talked about everything and nothing in particular. So people in the streets were talking to each other, yes, debating? Yes, yes, yes. In Did it make sense from time? In the metro, time? when the metro was running, and, and well, sometimes it made sense, sometimes not. Like, uh, but it was a general background of surrealistic atmosphere. Well, it is true that the French always like to talk, but did this feverish debate change the culture of Paris? I asked... Professor A.C. Grayley. French culture is so distinctive and strong that uh, even something as dramatic as the événement of uh, May and June 1968 couldn't really change it all that much. And in fact, if you look at the more recent history, if you look at riots and upsets in the streets of Paris and strikes, you see something of the same sort of thing. It's, I think, in the French blood. So let's take that little street on the left side of the theatre, Rue Corneille, and let's walk up in music to a place, Edmond Rostand. The tune we're going to listen to is L'Internationale, a communal song which the Soviet Union and all the communist parties in the world adopted later as their anthem. But don't forget, this is the commune we are in Paris. Let's cross Rue de Vaugirard to Rue de Médicis. You want to keep the Luxembourg Gardens on your right and you want to walk up to the Place Edmond Rostand. Uh, by the way, we've just passed on our right a cafe which has been popular with students since its creation in 1791, Le Petit Suisse. Professor Capdeville, are there cafes or are there shops you recognize from the time we, uh, which haven't changed? Where we are just now, no, but Rue Soufflot, there were cafes full with students and very politically discriminated. You have cafe for the left-wing students and cafe for the right-wing students. Depends of what you, of your opinion. You, if you were a left opinion, a leftist, you will never go to a right cafe for all the, the money in the world. As the student protest grew, this area saw some of the most violent action during the month of May 1968. As we walk towards the large junction ahead of us, Place Edmond Rostand, let's listen to radio report courtesy of INA, Institut National de l'Audiovisuel. 
An exhilarated reporter is caught between the police and the students. Cobblestones are flying and tear gas is choking the crowds, including him. Et en direct, comme vous le disiez tout de suite, les CRS chargent. Je suis en plein dans la charge des CRS. Ils contre-attaquent tandis que les pierres volent autour de nous, que les grenades explosent. C'est extraordinaire ce spectacle. Et à deux pas de là, les manifestants refluent tandis que autour de moi les pierres tombent de tous les côtés. Vous entendez les CRS qui crient pour s'aider mutuellement. Mais vraiment, c'est une scène d'émeute extraordinaire. À quel endroit du boulevard Saint-Germain vous trouvez-vous Eh bien, je me, je me trouve devant le Mabillon exactement. Mais je fais très attention, excusez-moi si je suis un petit peu essoufflé parce qu'on est obligé de courir, de faire attention aux pierres qui tombent de tous les côtés. Je vois là-bas, je vois là-bas, des CRS qui sont parvenus au contact. Et il y a des coups très très sévères qui sont déchargés. Et une nouvelle fois, les voitures font les frais de l'opération car les voitures ont été mises au travers de la roue. Voilà une pierre qui tombe juste à côté de moi. C'est absolument extraordinaire ce qui se passe ici. Une scène d'une violence inouïe. Comment Alors, les, les étudiants sont lâchés. Les, les gaz sont lâchés, ce ne sont plus des gaz lacrymogènes. <rire> ce sont des gaz... Ce sont des gaz asphyxiants, ou du moins des gaz qui font tousser. Et je suis obligé de revenir un petit peu en arrière, car c'est très difficile de tenir. At the end of the road, you will reach a large roundabout called Place Edmond Rostand. Walk right around it and meet us at the junction with Rue Gay-Lussac. See you there. So you should now be at the beginning of Rue Gay-Lussac, the big roundabout behind you, standing on the left side of the street. So let's walk up Rue Gay-Lussac. Andrew, it's May the 10th. La Grande Nuit des Barricades. In other words, the Barricades Big Night. This is when it's spilled over really from being a student's insurrection to, and into possibly something far more harder, far more violent, far more dangerous. The students have been heading towards the OATF, which is the French television headquarters, and been headed off by the police. The Rue Gay-Lussac is actually quite a wide thoroughfare for this part of Paris, in the Quartier Latin. But in those days, it was still made up of pavé, of, of cobblestones. So having found another route blocked, the students all of a sudden found that the, the weapons were to hand, which is the pavé, to launch attacks on the police. Now, what's interesting is that many of the icons, the iconographic photographs of May 68, belong to May the 10th. These are the photographs of the overturned, burnt-out cars, the barricades, which are over 10 foot high, with long-haired Jimi Hendrix look-alikes. But what really happened was actually truly terrifying, because the police actually launched a scorched-earth tactic against anybody and everybody, including the old neighbours who were pulling in students from the streets, they were attacking girls, they were attacking foreigners, all being taken away in the panier salade, the, 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 the police wagons and so on. And I think the students fought hard. They were joined by young working-class youths who fought harder, but it was the police who really ratcheted up the tension into, into what was becoming a very dangerous moment for the French government. Professor Capdeviel, you were there. Tell us how events progressed throughout the night. Six o'clock, that square and that boulevard were full of young people. At 8 o'clock they started to get bored. Which, which so, is a bad thing during a, a revolution. So we're now it's about 8 o'clock, is that correct, in the evening? Yes, approximately, when the first barricade started to, to, to get built, yes. Uh, and they were built with anything the student found. I mean, car, paper, kiosque uh, journal, paper. A new stands? And the barricade were until the first floor, I mean, first which is floor of the building. until the balcony, approximately. Well, you need a lot of things, yeah, you need a yeah, lot of cars. Yeah. They built this between 8 and 2 in the morning in front of the police. 
And at two and a half in the morning, next morning, the police charge, and the charge was very violent. You were there? Yeah, I, I was on the square, Place de Morosto. And so were you shouting at the police? Yes, like everybody, shouting uh, De Gaulle, uh, Abba De Gaulle. Down uh, with De Gaulle. Gouvernement populaire, uh, unité. Uh. What was astonishing, when the police charged those barricades, people that were standing in the building throw buckets of water to settle the, the gas. The tear gas, I see. So it, yeah. it was out of solidarity. The yeah. people in the, yeah. ha- the inhabitants of the yeah. buildings tried to actually yes. uh, uh, help the students. Yes, and that was very surprising because some of those people had their car being uh, burnt or in the barricade, but they still were uh, on the student side. One of the greatest quality of Paris is that it is a city which doesn't change much. Little shops tend, for instance, to remain independent and be passed on from one generation to the next. Such is the case of the vegetable and fruit shop standing at the corner of Rue Gay-Lussac and Rue Saint-Jacques. Stop here when you get to this corner and have a look on your iPod at the picture taken in May 1968. You'll see the same name written on it, Cours des Halles. Life continues as usual, except the shop is right in the heart of the revolution, standing behind a pile of cobblestones. Well, let's now go down Rue Saint-Jacques to the Sorbonne. Just keep to the left side of the street. Well, here we are on this beautiful and rather grand street with its house main in buildings, and all I can think of is, if I ever needed to build a barricade, but where would I start? Well, first of all, I need to break the thick layer of cement which covers the cobblestones. Not an easy task. Well, having this sorted, perhaps let's look around us. Have you noticed the round iron work at the bottom of trees, such as the one on your right behind the newsagent? Students in May 68 suddenly used them. Just look at the pictures on your pod. Also, cafe tables from those terraces, like the one on your left, could come very handy. Cars, too, make great shields, especially flying on their side and placed across the street. Beans and street lamps uh, could be unsealed and thrown on top of your barricade, but this would require the force of a few men. Also, pick a song, hum it to get in the mood, and then shout it in the face of riot police as they approach. They usually don't like this. of 1968 struck Paris and its inhabitants like a fever. The philosopher Alain Finkelkraut was 18 at the time and the student of the prestigious lycée Henri IV, which stands on the Pantheon Square. He was drawn to the events like a bee to honey. I was totally drawn to it, body and soul. I must say it was an event in the strictest sense of the term. Nobody expected it, nobody could control it. It was outstanding. 
I just plunged into the events, trying to find my marks and trying to find the keys to understand what was going on. So now you want to cross Rue Soufflot. The Pantheon is on your right and the Eiffel Tower on your left. Just keep going down Rue Saint-Jacques for about 50 meters. Once the initial shock was absorbed, student Alain Finkelkraut, like most of his friends, organized himself. I was looking for a cause to embrace. I became Maoist for reasons I still ignore. I became a militant. We were holding assemblies at the Jussieu University to obtain that exams be cancelled. I discovered the joys of politics. I loved being an orator, discussing with people in the streets. We were doing a very Maoist thing, which was to write posters in the streets so people would gather around us as we were riding and we would all engage in a debate. So today there is a great nostalgia for a time when Paris became a Greek agora. But of course, it's ironical because this great democratic experience was also filled with stupidities. So now you're probably at Rucujas, just take Rucujas and walk about 50 meters and then turn right into Rue Victor Cousin. Professor Capdevielle, there are a lot of secondary school pupils with the students yeah. and you are yourself doing a PhD at the time. So your experience, political experience, is quite different from those who are very young at the time. Well, I, I was preparing a thesis on union membership, so I had a lot of contact in the country with workers, and you could feel discontent growing because the economy was driven by Giscard d'Estaing, who was Ministry of Finance at the time, and he made a very tough planification against inflation, and the salary were blocked workers were more and more engaged in, in violence strike. But the economic but, growth yes. was very big at the time. It was about 5% a year. It was very big, but very unequally distributed. So you're now on Rue Victor Cousin, and we're going to walk down to the Sorbonne Square. But on the way, on the left, spare a thought for poet Arthur Rimbaud. Another angry young man who, according to the plaque on Hotel Cluny, lived there in a lovely little room where he was very happy. We are now on the Sorbonne Square. If you want to visit the Sorbonne, you can always pretend you're a student and try and for the guards dressed in blue, which you can see standing at the gates on your right. Or you can arrange for a guided tour if you call 00331 4046 Or if you call from Paris, you do 01-4046-2349. You can also check the Sorbonne website on sorbonne.fr. So now either sit by the fountain on the square while we tell you about the 34 nights and days the Sorbonne was occupied or you can walk down the Rue de la Sorbonne and turn left on Rue des Écoles and listen to us while having a coffee in Brasserie Balzar, a favourite stop for Sorbonne professors.
So it's very ironic as we're walking through Paris, revisiting May 68, we're actually arriving in the Sorbonne in the middle of a demonstration of students shouting, get the fascists out of universities. It's a small-scale demonstration compared to what happened in May 68 when the Sorbonne was occupied for 34 days and nights. Just imagine, students lived, talked and slept on the wooden benches of the amphitheatres. They painted the statue of Pasteur, which stands in the main courtyard, red. They hung posters of Lenin and Mao everywhere. They cooked, they fought and they made love in the corridors. Even the great philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre came to discuss politics and the course of the revolution with student leaders such as Daniel Cohn-Bendit. Andrew Hussey, can you tell us about this time? Yeah, what happened was that a general strike had been declared and students, believing the worst was over, were heading off to a demonstration down at Donferrochero. Again, the police were waiting for them. But, you know, the occupation of the Sorbonne wasn't planned, but it was whispered, it was rumoured. Everybody was talking about occupy the Sorbonne, occupy the Sorbonne. And during the night of, of Sunday the 12th, small groups of enragés and situationistes had already entered the Sorbonne. Guy Debord, the author of La Société des Spectacles, was the first amongst them. And one of the first things he, do, he did was to go to the great amphitheatre named after the, um, the mathematician, the, the, the Cavaillès, the Salle Cavaillès, and they wiped it out and declared it the Salle Jules Bonneau, which was in, named after a, a very famous anarchist gangster, famous for bank robberies and killing the police. Michelle Bernstein, one of the female leaders of the International Situationist, then declared that the building had been eliminated in the name of the Comité Enragé International Situationist and declared a munique to China, Moscow, Washington, tremble bureaucrate, nous sommes pouvoir. Tremble bureaucrats were now in power. So, Professor Capdeville, you were there. You occupied the Sorbonne. So, tell us how it was. Well, there was a, a piano accueil. Piano, there was uh, a grand piano. Uh, yeah, a grand piano. And people playing jazz or classical all the day long. And there was stand like a, you have the Trotskyists, two or three variety of Trotskyists, two or three different Maoism, socialists, communists, and each, each one having a table and a chair, but with a great respect of the neighbor. I mean, that, that was the most astonishing. Everybody listened to everybody. It was very libertarian. And tell us, because uh, there were a lot of debates, and in the Amphitheatre Richelieu yeah. on May the 28th and May the 29th, I think Jean-Paul Sartre yes. was there with student leaders. So, I mean, were you there? What were they yes, discussing? Yes, and, and what, what was very strange, for example, Jean-Paul Sartre, he, he waited that somebody give him his uh, turn of uh, voice. So he waited for he, he waited a young student to yeah, actually yeah, tell yeah, him, yeah, you can right. speak yeah, now. Yeah. And that was uh, very typical of the, the atmosphere at the time. On one hand, it was very respectful, as you're saying, but, I mean, people were just a bit like in the Odeon Theatre, I mean, talking all the time about what to do next. Yes. It uh, must have been extremely uh, about passionate... To, uh, what to do next concretely and what kind of society which was a kind of uh, dream and, and, and fantasy and, and ideological And did beauty. you agree on what should be done? You mean myself? No, I no. mean everybody who was there. No, there was different point of view but at the end the big idea was to unite student and worker. Now let's resume our walk and if you're not already at the Brasserie Balzar Make your way to the end of the Rue de la Sorbonne and turn left into Rue des Écoles.
So we're now going to make our way to the École des Beaux-Arts, the School of Fine Arts, through the little streets of the Latin Quarter. This should take us about 15 minutes, and on our way we'll be looking at the artistic output of the time with our art critic guests, and we'll be discussing their importance. As you leave the Brasserie Balzar, turn left into Rue des Écoles and pass on your left iconic art house cinema Le Champeau, and stop at the traffic light on the Boulevard Saint-Michel, ready to cross over to Rue de l'École de Médecine. I think you should check the programme at Le Champeau, or one of the four cinemas in that street, and come back later to see one of those cinematic gems. You won't regret the experience and the atmosphere. Cinema played a great role for 1968 students, as it still does today. Paris is the capital of cinema, with the highest number of art house cinemas and the most varied programming in the world. Edouard Ventrop, celebrated French film critic, was only 15 in May 68, but his love for cinema fed his love for the revolution. In March 68, I was around 15 years old, and I was a cinephile at that time. And in March 68, Longlois is fired from the Cinematheque, and I was one of the people who were uh, against this and who organized a little riot against the government. With uh, I was uh, behind Jean-Luc Godard and Claude Chabrol and all, all these uh, French directors of the Nouvelle Vague who were uh, defending the right to Henri Langlois to stay in the Cinematheque he has created. And the cinema, the new cinema, was something we were very fan of because it was like uh, what we wanted, new thing, new air, a new respiration in, in the movies. The feeling of freedom we believed to find in these movies. Maybe it was not so right, so that's why uh, the new wave was so, uh, so popular among the youngsters of this time. We were Marxist in politics and we were dissidents in, in cinema. on the Rue de l'École de Médecine make sure to keep close to the wall on the right side of the pavement as buses drive down very fast. We just passed on the left yet another cinema, the Cinema Racine. It's really an obsession. Our ask film critic Nick James, editor of Sight and Sound, how the revolution affected the art form of French cinema. The whole thing about cinephilia is it seemed to have been integrated somehow with, with the politics of the time, with the general feeling about change in the world. Cinephilia was, was, was an aspect of, of who you were as a, as, a, as a kind of modern young person. You were kind of revolutionary in your thinking, but you were also revolutionary in your tastes, and this, this includes literature and cinema. So your curiosity about cinema would be not just ranging out around the world, but also ranging back in history so that people became very knowledgeable about, about, about the cinema because they felt they needed to be, you know, to understand uh, the media, to understand the modern world, to understand the way it worked, you needed to be an expert in the seventh art cinema. 68 isn't just about politics. The politics of the time meant that, that you were meant to be artistically extreme as well. So you were testing the boundaries of art in the same time as you are testing the boundaries of what is politically possible.
the uh, Viennese patisserie was uh, some a local a local for you? <laughs> we used to come in the afternoon, forty years ago only. <laughs> and what was your favorite cake? I think they are cheesecake, something like that. Yeah, it's, it's the same for me. Cakes, yeah. As we make our way uh, to the School of Fine Arts, I'm joined by art historian Sarah Wilson from the Coulthard Institute, and we're passing the medical school on our right, which in May 1968 was covered uh, with red flags, posters, graffiti, and, well, today it looks quite clean, though uh, we can see one institutional slogan, or so to speak, painted black, Défense d'afficher. It's forbidden to plaster anything here, which is quite ironical, don't you think, Sarah? I too have been often struck by these enormous notices that deface beautiful neoclassical buildings saying law of 29th July 1881 and that's about all they have to put. That was the um, law preventing graffitis and certain kind of political protest on walls in the street. Obviously it's not very effective sometimes and absolutely less effective in 1968. They were obviously in spray paint era and not only were there graffiti done in ordinary paint, but spray paint, uh, graffiti done onto existing posters, of course. Um, defacing is always great fun. And, of course, the whole point about this is that it adheres to the principles of the great French poet Isidore Ducasse, the Count of L'Autriamont, who was so important for the Surrealists, who said poetry should be made by everybody, not just by poets. This idea that everybody was creatively liberated, that everybody could make a work of art or graffiti, was very important. This idea that beneath every paving stone, there were the sands and the sea of the imagination. So slogans like Sous les pavés, la plage, beneath the paving stones, the sea, everything was there ready to explode and turn ordinary citizens into creators. Suddenly, this hierarchical thing which existed between not just teachers and students, but parents and children, and even husbands and wives, suddenly exploded and there was a general tutoiement and everybody became addressed in familiar terms. At Carrefour de l'Odéon, cross the large boulevard Saint-Germain, heading for the UGC cinema. Go left down the boulevard, so keeping the cinema on your right, and heading for the Tex-Mex restaurant. Just after the Tex-Mex, turn down a little alleyway. And if you're lucky enough to do this walk in spring, you'll see trees of the boulevard blossoming. For Edouard Wentrop, it's one of his most vivid memory of the 68 events. What struck me at that time was less the posters than the, the trees which were blossoming. Usually at that period of the year, we were uh, working for the examinations. That year, we were outside. And we were not only outside, but we were crossing the streets, marching on the middle of the streets, we had to look up and uh, we see the, the blooms. It struck me really at that maze or something. Mm-hmm. 
despite the way down this alleyway, it's one of the oldest streets in Paris. You can see the cobblestones. The government hasn't yet thought of covering it up with cement, so might prove quite useful one day soon, perhaps when the French have had enough of Sarkozy's antics. Further down on the left stands the back of Café Le Procope. That's the oldest café in Paris, which was set up in 1686. The philosopher and father of the Enlightenment, Voltaire, used to come and have his coffee here. Cafes in Paris have always had a huge importance in the country's politics. Remember that the French Revolution sprang from one of them, on the right bank, in the Palais Royal. Also, the great Jean Jaurès, a socialist leader, great defender of Alfred Dreyfus, was assassinated in a café by a nationalist on the eve of the First World War. Every day since 1686, Parisians read the news and argue about politics in cafés. Smoking may not be permitted anymore, but arguing is still allowed. Rue Saint-André-des-Arts, then at the junction, you want to cross over Rue de l'Ancienne Comédie towards Rue de Bussy, which is lined with cafes and delicatessens. which uh, you will see on your right, will turn right into Rue de Seine. Sarah, Rue de Seine is full of little art galleries. As we walk down the street, tell us about one of them. Once we get to 52 Rue de Seine, uh, we walk past the gallery Jeanne Boucher. And Jeanne Boucher was a fantastic gallerist who lived here in the 1930s. That seems very, very far away from 1968 but it's a gallery that specializes now in Jean Dubuffet. And he wrote, although he was considered a kind of an oldie at the time, he wrote his manifesto, Asphyxiating Culture, in 1967. And when it actually came out, it was totally eclipsed by the May events. But it was very, very important. The idea that culture was asphyxiating everything in Paris is a recurring proposition. We're walking up this very, very straight road where the numbers all lead up to beginning at the Seine. And Paris, designed by Hausmann, is a series of very, very direct boulevards designed really for military things, for, in fact, confrontations with the police, which is what 68's all about. In fact, the situationist idea 
goes right back to surrealism with these important ideas of psychogeography, finding surprising and weird places in the secret Paris, but also two more important 68 ideas, that of dérive and détournement. Dérive is like really the word for a bend or a swerve, which means swerving things off course. So, of course, everything swerved massively off course in 68, although, strangely enough, it was in institutions, the respected historic institutions like the Beaux-Arts and the Sorbonne, that things began. Past the Café La Palette, on your right, where, if you're lucky, you may get a glimpse of actress Juliette Binoche, but if she's not there, well, continue your walk and turn left into the narrow Rue Visconti. The street is not named after the great Italian film director, but after the architect who designed Napoleon's tomb, which lies at the Invalide. Professor Capdevielle, what would the students of 1968 have made of Napoleon? Would they have considered him a tyrant, a petit bourgeois, an opportunist, or the greatest of all revolutionaries? A tyrant, without hesitation, a tyrant. tyrant. Why? Uh, the way he, first he was a military and he took his power from military origin he was he was not democratic I mean all what the students reject could be symbolized by Napoleon but Napoleon was not mentioned in 68 it was not the problem of students in, in Napoleon what strikes me the students tried to go to the radio building or to the Champs-Élysées. They protest and they came along the Assemblée Nationale, the, the Parliament, National French Assembly. Parliament. They did not stop and they did not look even at the Parliament. It was not their problem. The problem was the power in the street. It's a citizen powership. <laughs> Visconti turned right into Rue Bonaparte up to number 14. The Ecole des Beaux-Arts, the art school, is the 18th century building you can see on the left side. standing in front of the rather grand 18th century building of Les Beaux-Arts, Paris's most prestigious art school. Again, like for the Sorbonne, if you want to get through the gates on which a black and white poster says no access to the public, well, try and look just like an art student, slightly disheveled perhaps and confident like hell. But if you're too old or simply too respectful of laws, well... Just stand outside, like us, right between the two beautiful and monumental carved heads of famous painter Nicolas Poussin on your right side and lesser-known artist Pierre Puget on your left side. During May 68, artists and students were every day producing amazing posters which have since become iconic. Professor Capdevielle, deciding on which posters were printed and then plastered on the walls of Paris was quite a democratic process, wasn't it? Well, first you have to know that main artist, sculptor and, and painter came at the Buddha spontaneously to work with students. And like I said with Sartre in the Sorbonne, any artist was like any student. Everybody was equal. So they came in the morning around 
eight or nine, they gather and they had a general discussion, exchange about what was the things today to the to, topic to, of the day. And after, everybody goes dans les ateliers in the work in the uh, workshops in the workshop to make poster. And at five in the afternoon, they gather in the main hall. They put the poster on a line, and in front of each poster, there was one student, in boy favor. or girl, in favor of the poster, and one against the poster. And after, there was a vote. And if the vote was positive, the poster was printed in, in serigraphy, which was a fast and cheap way of making poster. And next morning, early in the morning, it was distributed and, uh, and put on the walls on in the, the wall. streets of Paris. Yeah. So, Sarah Wilson, tell us a little more about these posters. People think, oh yeah, posters. Now, of course, they taught lithography in the Atelier des Beaux-Arts. Suddenly, one of the artists called Denis de Rougemont brought back silk screening. And hey, presto, the production was absolutely rapid. And it looks like uh, there were sort of washing lines everywhere with all the ink drying. It looks <laughs> almost like a Parisian laundry with all these posters. On the other hand, the ideological content of the posters was very important. And there were long meetings about certain posters, in particular one, although they were supposed to be completely anonymous, by the artist Bernard Rancillac, who used a slogan which directly referred to the police having said that Daniel Cohn-Bendit, the revolutionary leader, was a Jew and a German, bringing up all those fascist associations, the problem of French collaboration and so forth. And this poster was an image of Cohn-Bendit looking almost like a young Arthur Rimbaud with the slogan, Nous sommes tous des Juifs et des Allemands. We're all German Jews now. This was actually considered a bit too heavy and a bit too provocative and nerve-touching for the atelier, and although some were printed, they're extremely rare, the slogan was changed to Nous sommes tous des indésirables, we are all undesirables. But they were very, very punchy things, and the idea of the transformation of the city through these posters and through, if you like, the silent slogans of the posters echoing the chanted slogans of the demonstrators meant that a kind of silent museum, touristy city suddenly became alive and revolutionary, inside out from top to bottom, inside the Sorbonne, where the students wrote their slogans all over the oil paintings of the former presidents and so forth. So we're now going to leave Les Beaux-Arts and turn left into Rue Bonaparte to the Seine River and we're going to cross to go to the right bank because what I want to show you is May 68 didn't only happen in the Latin Quarter but actually the whole of Paris was seized with revolutionary fever. Wasn't it the case? Yes, it was. And the most violent night was on the right bank on the 24th of May. Where was it exactly? Uh, not far from Gare de Lyon, La Bourse. The stock market uh, exchange yeah, yeah. and Gare de Lyon. Yeah. I think from May the 13th onwards, the occupation of the Sorbonne, two things are happening in parallel, but which, which are sort of having an influence on each other. One is that the government doesn't know what to do, that de Gaulle has already gone off to Romania and he's left his, his, his incompetent right-hand man, Louis Jacques, behind, and he literally does not know what to do. Now, what's happening in parallel with that is that there's a kind of snowball effect emanating from the Sorbonne that students across France and, and within Paris, other small 
small groups as well are realising, hang on, wait a minute, what's happening at the Sorbonne is not just a kind of like student prank, it's something that's terrified the government and it's, it's like that moment in a game of chess that you realise you can suddenly bring the whole thing collapsing down on your head. There's a third element which is the accumulating fear of the everyday, ordinary, bourgeois, middle-class Parisian. And this is not to be underestimated, too, as an effect. As sinks start to get blocked up, as rubbish is, is not emptied, as the metro is not working properly, all of the structures of everyday life are starting to disintegrate. Now, you want to cross the large road in front of you called de Conti towards the famous Parisian booksellers and walk along the river to the right towards the footbridge, the very romantic Bon des Arts, one of my favourite bridges in Paris. The impressive building on the other side of the river is Le Louvre, bien sûr. to the bridge and cross the river and just look on your right and your left isn't it the most beautiful part of Paris? I'm 
surprised we haven't talked about love yet. I think this is the perfect place. As May 1968 was all about passion. Passion for ideas, for politics and passion for women. Many young men who had spent their youth cooped up in all-male schools suddenly discovered love on the barricade. Also the pill had just been legalised. So I asked the very charming Anthony C. Grayling about love on the barricades. I wasn't in Paris myself at the, at the time of the events, but I was there fairly soon after. And there was a long, lingering shadow. I mean, the whole of the 60s had been a very liberated era. But that sense of fraternity was very, very much there in Paris at the time, and along with it, some very beautiful girls. And so, of course, it's a, a happy memory. So did the events of 68 have any long-lasting effect? So far as romance is concerned, the very, very sensible French attitude to it persisted unchanged afterwards. I mean, there was a long tradition, you know, right back to the naughty 90s of the late 19th century when people thought of Paris as the capital of romance. That image wasn't changed by the events of 1968. If anything, it was rather confirmed by them because people saw, especially what the students had done, not so much what the, the, the general strike uh, meant, but what the students had done as an expression of romanticism. So an aspect of that attitude towards other people and their good, which is part and parcel of a, of, of a kind of sexual revolution also, uh, because it's a, an embracing, inclusive um, enjoyment of others. How about feminism? Did 1968 help the feminist cause? Because the 1960s had seen, and indeed uh, starting in the 1950s, a feminist movement everywhere. And some of the most eloquent and articulate defenders of the feminist outlook were to be found in France. And a lot of the people who were on the barricades and in those marches uh, in May and June of 1968 were, of course, women, female students at the universities, also women among the strikers too. And so you had the feeling that this was uh, an expression of empowerment and engagement, which uh, seems to me to have remained ever since. Now cross the large road called Quai François Mitterrand and walk straight across into the exquisite courtyard of Le Louvre, which you will be entering through the south gate. Hurry up, one of our guests is waiting. Our guest is the BBC's former Paris correspondent, Caroline Wyatt. Caroline, as we're making our way to the North Gate through the square, tell us about the effect of 1968 on modern-day France. Do you remember when Nicolas Sarkozy, during his presidential campaign, said how he wanted to, I quote, liquidate the legacy of 1968? He made this promise, I will liquidate the heritage of 68. I think partially to separate himself very much from what the socialists were offering, which in effect was a continuation. So if you looked at the socialist candidate, Ségolène Royal, she was promising to make France more of the France of 68. And Nicolas Sarkozy made one of his appeals to the electorate as being the kind of anti-68, the man who wanted to make France get up early in the morning, to make France work hard again, to do all the things that he felt that the 68 generation were against, that that generation was responsible for making France, you know, lacking in its economy, making France less, well, more work-shy nations, if you like. But Nicolas Sarkozy was a son of 1968, wasn't he? He's a fascinating character because he was shaped by 68, but he was shaped almost in opposition to it. And there's a fantastic photograph in Paris Match of when everybody is up on the barricades... He's also up on the barricades, but he's there sort of protesting in his suit, in his lovely smart blazer and sort of his tight, but they look like sort of ironed jeans. 
So he was definitely a sort of protester, but he's almost more a president of the 80s. And how has 1968 shaped today's France? I think you can see the legacy of 68 in a lot of the, the culture, a lot of the landmarks, a lot of the way France is still run or formed, partially because the people who came through in 68 are still running things to a great degree, both within the Socialist Party, but also if you look at culture, if you look at operas, galleries, all of that. It's a country that's almost changed less than, say, Britain did. We had that's right revolution. We believe in young people coming through in France. This was one of the things that Sarkozy promised to change. It is a country where very much the older people are still in charge, where those in their 50s and 60s are still running newspapers or still running culture. And that was one of the great complaints of, say, the students who went off and had their own protests more recently, who said, you know, what about us? You don't trust young people, you don't give them the jobs, we're not allowed to do anything. We have all these old people sitting there, still in charge, still in positions of power, and we want to get rid of them. And that was a large part of this president's constituency, those people who wanted to overthrow the revolution of 68 with their own revolution of, of the noughties. Emerge out of the courtyard by the north gate, which stands on the Rue de Rivoli. Cross Rue de Rivoli and go forward down Rue de Marengo. At the end of Rue Marengo, cross the street Rue Saint-Honoré and walk straight into Rue Jean-Jacques Rousseau. As we walk along this old philosopher street, let's listen to the more modern philosopher A.C. Grayling put the events of 1968 into a wider context. Well, of course, the events of 1968 were a direct outcome, I think, of the tradition that began in the 18th century at very least, not just with the French Revolution, but with the revolution in thought that was uh, mainly inspired by the, the philosophers of the French Enlightenment. Back in the 1740s, 1750s, around the time that the great encyclopedia Diderot was under construction, people there were saying, we have to be free to think free in conscience. We have to be free as individual members of the state and we have to be free partners with one another in a social dispensation of genuine equality and fraternity. These were ideas, of course, that led directly to the French Revolution, but all the way through, I mean, if you think about 1830, 1848, the 1870s after the Franco-Prussian War, that the terrible shocks of the, especially the First World War and uh, uh, Second World War also, these ideas persisted all the way through them. And people living at the time, people conscious all the way through from January when the very first student unrest began in France and, and right the way through to that uh, dramatic summer, people saw that as another expression of the French spirit which had been given such a clear statement really back then in the 18th century with the French Enlightenment. Is France today still passionate about abstract thought as it was in 1968? Well, France has produced a number of very significant figures just in recent years, like uh, Derrida and Foucault and uh, others. The debate in France in, in philosophy is an extremely lively one. Lively not just in academic circles, not just in the feuilleton, in the newspapers, but you go to cafes and go, go, go to these café philo discussions that they have on Sunday mornings, and you see there this love of ideas and love of debate is still absolutely at, at full flood. And while that is the case, you know, while people are talking about ideas, it's almost inevitable that something will come out of them. That it's not just dead wood. It's been the case right the way through modern French history, at any rate, that, that ideas have had great impact on action too. 
back to 1968. A general strike is decided on May the 13th after students and workers unite. France and later Italy are the only two countries at the time where the youth join forces with the workers. And let us not forget that there are 7 million workers in France in 1968. Together they represent a formidable force. And they not only want to overturn the regime and send de Gaulle to a retirement home, they also want to change society. But to do this, they need A, to convince the rest of the population, B, to agree among themselves. This is what's at stake in the last two weeks of May. At the end of Rue Jean-Jacques Rousseau, there's a little square on the right. Stand there, facing Bourse de Commerce, that lovely round building, which was one of the gates to Les Halles. Les Halles was what Zola called le ventre de Paris, in other words, the belly of Paris, where the general food market was. Although it looks clean and lovely today, imagine what it would have looked like in the last days of May. The general strike is having severe effects on the mood of Parisians. After a few days, there's no more petrol for cars, and since public transports don't work either, people have to walk or cycle. Undertakers are also on strike, so dead bodies have to be kept at home. Nobody knows how long for. Garbage isn't collected anymore, and huge heaps of detritus are rising at every corner of Paris, and especially in Léal, where it is the food market. So, Professor Capdevielle, it must have been quite smelly even in the streets of Paris. It was, yes, it was, and you had rats and... and, uh, Do you remember seeing rats? Yeah, of course. One of the models for May 68 was the Paris Commune of um, 1871. And, of course, this this was both a legend, but it was also a disaster. And what was also being echoed in the streets of Paris was the disastrous aspect of the Commune, which was rats in the streets, rubbish that wasn't collected, the very very serious danger of typhoid reappearing. All of a sudden, the revolution seemed to be taking Paris backwards and not forwards. And this is where the, the, the cry for le rappel à l'ordre came from. De Gaulle put it rather more fruitily... When he described the students as chi as literally shitting in their own beds. And it was this anger, which is not political, it was driven really by a sense of frustration that led to the demonstrations that, that, that brought us to the 30th of May. We'll now make our way to the Champs-Élysées. So you can either hop on the tube from Rue de Rivoli, which is on your right, at the end of Rue du Louvre, take the line number one, it's the yellow line going towards La Défense. It's only three stops. Get off at Concorde. You can walk, of course, westward down the Rue de Rivoli. This will take you about 20 minutes. We'll see you there, right in the middle of the square by the Egyptian obelisk with a golden cap. You'll know what I mean when you see it. So we're now standing on the Place de la Concorde at the bottom of the Champs-Élysées facing the Arc of Triomphe. It is May the 30th. One million people are demonstrating in favour of de Gaulle. They are waving thousands of French flags and shouting slogans in favour of the President of the Republic. So, the question is, how have we got here? The general strike and its disturbing effects on the country's daily life has scared many people. But perhaps more importantly, after two weeks of intense debate, students and workers still can't agree on what should be done. They appear increasingly at odds with each other, unable to propose an alternative to the power of General de Gaulle. Many French people feel lost and abandoned, especially as de Gaulle has just disappeared on a secret trip to check on the army's support. 
Spontaneously, in the middle of the afternoon, many Parisians gather here, Place de la Concorde. But this time, it's not the revolutionary students. It's the everyday people. And what they want is le rappel à l'ordre and the goal to bring back order. Ironically enough, amongst the people demonstrating on the Champs-Élysées, you have workers, you have artisans, you have people who've got small businesses. They're not just big sort of run corporations for the state and all of this kind of stuff. You've got a lot of ordinary people who feel alienated, confused and angry at the students. And this is where I think the, the bond that never really happens between the workers and the students actually falls apart because they don't speak the same language, they don't have the same mentality and they are not driven by the same aims at all. And all of a sudden, utopia looks frightening to the ordinary person in the street. Tout le monde comprend, évidemment, quelle est la portée des actuels événements universitaires puis sociaux. Professor Capdevielle, a lot of people who have remained at home hear on the radio that this demonstration is happening. Yes, and completely different from, from the other protesters. I mean, even in their suits and their well-shaved and a lot of women, bourgeois, most of them old people. The so they are mainly conservative? They are 90% conservative, yes. 15-year-old Edouard Ventrop remembers that day in particular. The event which shows that half of the population was not involved in the events of May. That was something very sad for a youngster, 16 years old at that time. Uh, I was wondering what was the meaning of all that from the first days of May to these first days of June. Professor Capdevielle, where are you on May the 30th? I think I was uh, very sad uh, in, in, with my radio. And, listening uh, to the radio. Listening to the radio. Et ouvrir plus largement la route au sang nouveau de la France. Vive la République. Vive la France. We have now finished our tour, but we haven't quite finished the story of May 68. So you may want to stay where you are for another few minutes, gazing at the Arc of Triumph in front of you, or you may want to turn your back to the Champs-Élysées and start making your way to the Tuileries Gardens. The revolution was struck a massive blow on May the 30th when one million people demonstrated here in support of de Gaulle, but it took another 17 days for the revolution to die. The revolution didn't end on the 30th of May, but the crackdown led by de Gaulle did. And what happened was the policing went faster and harder. Ironically enough, they evoked a law from the 1930s, which had been drawn up by the Popular Front, which banned demonstrations in the streets. So on the back of this, they were able to go and smash up demonstrations. They also went into factories, and two workers were killed at the Sochaux. All of a sudden, this looked like a very violent and frightening confrontation. And again, this, this started the drift back to order. I think when deaths and injuries became serious, then that was a moment for people to realise that this wasn't a game anymore, or at least at least it was a game that was turned very, very bloody indeed. So, through the month of June, effectively what happened was the police crackdown got harder, more effective, and then in July, with, with, with the collapse of the Prague Spring, it seemed as if finally the dream was over.
Of May 68, though, remain vivid memories, ideas, hopes, foolish dreams perhaps, naive slogans too, but also a political passion that is still meaningful today. France was a 19th century country, and we jumped from 19th to 21st century in just a few weeks. Personally, I take May 68 as an inspiration, actually. And I would say what is fascinating about it still is it's the first truly postmodern revolution. That's to say, it's not a revolution driven by 19th century Marxist ideas of class, but to do with boredom, boredom with consumer capitalism, to do with a sense that everyday life itself is a contrick that's been perpetrated on us. It shows that it's very, very hard in a Western liberal democracy to make changes revolutionarily, and that what's instinct in the very structure of our kind of society is uh, constitutional evolutionary change. That's a useful lesson I think everybody's learned from it. As the situationists point out, you know, real life is elsewhere. Let's find it. Let's find the techniques to get in there. So, you know, absolutely revolutionary. I hope you've enjoyed your trip through Paris. My thanks to everybody who joined me along the journey. Sarah Wilson, Nick James, Edward Ventrop, Olivier Rollin, Caroline Wyatt, A.C. Grayling, Andrew Hussey, Professor Jacques Capdevielle, and Alain Finkelkraut. My thanks too to Sarah Harrison and Lee Clark for their wonderful musical accompaniment. My name is Agnès Poirier and this program was produced by Francesca Panetta. <laughs>